Hey friend, you're listening to the Devoted Women Podcast. The audio you are about to listen to is a recording from our in-person Bible study meeting and is intended to be listened to after having completed the lesson in your workbook. So for this particular study, you can head on over to amazon.com, search Engaging God's Word Genesis, get your copy, do the work, and then hit play. We are so glad that you have joined us. The story of Abraham and Isaac, it is common, it's known, um, it's one of those when you sit down and you think like, what am I going to teach? You think about all the things you already know and it just like, what am I going to teach you about a story that you know so well? Um, God really shows up and um, I, I feel like I have some exciting stuff. I feel like I really treasured this one. I, I think I say that every Monday, like this was my favorite so far and this was my, and um, maybe it's just me, but I, I really, really enjoyed putting this one together. So I hope that y'all enjoy it. I hope that you learned something, at least something new. Um, we'll just go ahead and jump right into verse 1. And um, those first words, now it came to pass after these things. Um, my, in um, verse, Bible um, comparison, what is happening to me? I promise I'm going to get there. Bible comparison. It's one of my favorite things to do when I'm putting something together. And if you are, if you don't do that when you study, I highly recommend that you do. Um, it really helps shed some light on the things. And I went to the NLT in verse one there, and it says some time later. So it gives us an idea there of where we left off. We left off last week. Um, or the last time we were together. Was that last week? No, two weeks ago. And we had just witnessed Isaac being born. Um, And in 22, we see now that some years have gone by. So I went back and I did the math here. And um, we saw last week that Sarah was 90 when she had Isaac. And in the next chapter, in chapter 23, we're going to see that Sarah is 127 when she passes away. So if we do the math, that leaves us with Isaac being 37, give or take. Most commentators believe that um, Isaac was in his 30s at this time. So I know for me, um, it's again those... Bible stories that we talk about over and over again, how we teach these children Bible stories, the flood and the cute animals and, you know, the Garden of Eden with the the apple and the the cartoon serpent and all of those things. And here we have (laughs) cute little boy Isaac and his old father and... This is the picture of Abraham taking Isaac 
to be sacrificed. How many of y'all remember it like that as a child or, and in my mind, like that's really what I'm picturing as I'm reading the story. And then when I see this, I'm like, no, not even a little bit. So um, today we're going to see the difference. This is not, and it made me think all day, like, should we be teaching our kids that type of Bible story? I mean, I think we should be teaching our kids the Bible for sure, but like, do we create these weird things? And then when they get older, we're like, well, no, not really. Like, maybe it's like baby talking your children. Like, maybe you shouldn't baby talk and maybe you shouldn't water down their Bible stories. Maybe you should just give it to them right from the beginning. I don't know. Too late for me. Mine are already ruined. This is what they know. <laughs> just kidding. <sighs> so um, on the website this week, we looked at the, as we move on, we're going to move on into the phrase, God tested Abraham. We're still in verse one, believe it or not. And um, on the website, we looked at the Hebrew word Nissa. Um, that means tested or to prove the quality of. I really liked that definition, to prove the quality of. Um, we clarified on this day the difference between being tested and being tempted. When we look at the chapter through the lens of testing instead of tempting, we can get a better understanding of God and his purpose in this hard to read story. Um, as mothers, this is a hard one to read. You're thinking, what is God asking this man to do? If any, if Casey tried to take my children, I, you know what I mean? Like, it's just one of those that you're, it kind of makes you feel like what is going on. But when we put it in the context of the verses that we looked at from James this week, um, it does help us to have a better understanding of what God is asking and um, helps us to, to really grasp um, the questions like, how can a good God ask such a thing as child sacrifice? Um, though we will see later on in that this would be something that was uh, relevant to the cultures surrounding them, so it is kind of one of those odd little things that is slid in there. But um, it does, we do. We, as humans, we, we tend to question, how is a good God going to even ask this, even if he knows he's not going to make Abraham follow through? Um, we talk a lot, a lot in devoted in this ministry about being careful about making the Word of God a book about us and not a book about God. And this is one of those stories I think that is a perfect example of why we stress that. This is a book about God. So when we try to make it about us, that's where we get those feelings, those, those questions. So um, I want us to look again at James 1, 13 through 18. And I'll read it for you. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So through our study in Genesis, we have seen real life um, 
big examples of the first part of this verse. Adam and Eve, Cain and his clan, um, the evil men before the flood, the men of Babel, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, even Abram, Sarai, and um, Hagar, 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 Hagar. Um, in each of these stories, these people were tempted and were definitely drawn away by his or her, her own desires. So we've seen that play out from the very beginning of the study. Um, we'll see more of that. But um, if we move on to 16 and 17 through 18, um, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation of shadow of turning of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So in verses 13 and 15, we see that God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt. So we can with a clear conscience know that God is asking this of Abraham not to trip him up, but to but for his benefit, for Abraham's good. But what I really want you guys to grasp is we can't forget the circumstances leading up to this chapter. God has given Abraham this son, Isaac, in the craziest of ways. Isaac is the epitome of a good and perfect gift. And all of our children are, are that, a good and perfect gift. So Isaac is a gift God has chosen to give, a promise that God fulfilled out of his power and his goodness alone. Of his own will, just like it says in verse 18 of James, what we just read, um, of his own will, he chose to bring forth Abraham, he chose to bring forth Isaac, and he chose to bring forth us. Um, that mankind out of all creation would become his prized possession. So the very end of 18 there, when it says to be a kind of first fruits of his creation, that means his prized possession. Out of all creation, we are his prized possession. So... Um, when we read the rest of this chapter through the lens of those two, or those, not two, five verses, um, we're setting the mood for the rest of this teaching. Um, God is a good God, and he loves to give his children good gifts. So um, I have a little personal story that I'm gonna share with you guys. And I, it's funny because I thought I had shared this before, and um, I have almost a little parallel here to the story. Um, I had Riley, and uh, he was about 18 months or so, don't remember, it's been a very long time, and we decided we weren't going to have any more children. Now, I had my kids long ago enough that there were still some doctors that would do what you wanted them to do. Or, yeah, like it wasn't this whole like lawsuit craziness and they're so very careful. And I had a doctor who agreed to tie my tubes. I was 23 when I had Riley. Is that right? Gosh, I don't know. 
I was young. I had one kid. They would never do that nowadays. It's just not normal. But he had me come two or three appointments. He wanted to counsel with me. And we just didn't want to have more kids. My husband's an only child. I don't even know where the, the conversation even came from, but our minds were made up. That's what we were doing. So I had an IUD up to the day that I had surgery. I went in, I had my tubes tied. I had my IUD taken out that day. And two weeks later, I started feeling pregnant. And there's just no way it's impossible. Like I have had birth control and I have had the surgery. Like there's no way. So I tell my husband, go get the test. I'm going to just put it out of my mind and um, then we'll move on with our lives. And I took another test and another test and another test. And I finally called this doctor and I'm like, I am having this many positive pregnancy tests. Like I am pregnant and he, nothing, just be in my office in the morning. So I went in, they told me my, um, I, there probably wasn't gonna be a heartbeat because I had, I mean, I was early, early pregnant when this happened. I guess a pre-op test didn't pick up the pregnancy test. Um, just weird weirdness. So we go in, do the ultrasound, heartbeats there. Come to find out the egg is fertilized in the tube and then drops into the uterus to be, to implant and his perfect timing was in the uterus. He didn't get damaged in the tubes. He is alive. He is here. <laughs> so second grade, he ends up with a huge tumor. His face is, I mean, it's giant. It is the most terrifying thing. He went to school. He was normal, came back later, and he's got a giant tumor. It's, we go to Lubbock, they tell us it could be cancer, it's mass, it's not liquid, um, this whole, but I had a piece the whole time because of the craziest way that he had got here. And in my mind, I couldn't fathom that God would put him here. I always tell him, he always asks me, mom, tell me about how I got here again, because <laughs> we always made it a really positive thing. But I couldn't in my mind think that it was coincidence that God had put him here to, and so the whole time through all the doctor's appointments and the surgeries and um, all, all the things that, and, and he still has some things that we're dealing with because of that, but um, it's just what, like, I don't know how people don't believe in God and chalk stuff like that up to coincidence. It just blows my mind. So back to, <laughs> Back to what I was actually doing. Um, tonight we are going to look at five main points, um, five ways that the story points us to Jesus and how these points moved Abraham into a deeper relationship with God. I will say from the beginning of meeting Abraham till now um, has been such a blessing to me in my walk with Christ. Such a blessing. I think that I'm a second guesser. I second guess my calling. I second guess my decisions. I second guess everything. And um, this has been just the most beautiful um, story for me, the most healing story for me. So I'm not going to talk about myself anymore, I promise. Um, 
Okay, so Abraham is given the command to take his only son, whom he loves. By the way, this is the first time the word love is mentioned in scripture, and how beautiful that it is, the love between father and son, exactly how it should be. Um, and they to go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain. We see Abraham in perfect obedience, get up early and prepare and head that way. Abraham had learned to trust God's plan, to trust that God would bring the promise to pass. How many times have we repeated this, right? Over and over. And we're finally seeing this beautiful picture of Abraham getting it. He gets it. He gets up. He moves. Um, Guzik puts it this way in his commentary. He says, trust the promiser no matter what, and the promise will be taken care of. So we're going to go back to the plan. This is maybe the most uncanny parallel um, found in the Old Testament of the coming of Christ and the plan of the Father to give his only begotten son as a sacrifice for you and me. That is the plan we're going to look at tonight. So number one, the first parallel of Isaac and Jesus um, both Isaac and Jesus um, were the only sons and loved by their fathers. If you'll remember when Tanea taught um, last week and we talked about Ishmael being, how can he only have one son? Well, I, Abraham put him out. He um, is no longer part. He had separated him from the family, making Isaac Abraham's only son. So... Um, that is the first similarity between Isaac and Jesus. And in that, we're getting a, a picture of Jesus. And number two, both Jesus and Isaac were sacrificed on the same hill. So did you go to the website on day two? This was my most greatest thing ever for me to find this as I was preparing. Um, the land of Moriah um, is also referred to as Mount Zion. We're going to look at this. Mount Zion's here. We're looking at the whole land here. Um, in Genesis 14 and 18, where we have just been, um, we see the king of Salem or Jerusalem. So the, the word is just shortened in chapter 14. And then as we move on, it's going to become Jerusalem. Um, so that is here. More of like the city, we would consider that there. And then the land of Moriah is in the same area that David would purchase the threshing floor here. And um, he would purchase that and prepare preparation for building the temple. Now, David doesn't get to build the temple. Um, we know that if you studied Samuel with us, but um, it is this is the actual place that his son Solomon did construct the temple. So right here. The temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and his armies in 587, 586. Um, and the temple was rebuilt after the Jews returned after the Babylonian captivity. And then um, 
We know that this is the same temple, even though it was built, it was torn down. Um, King Herod did add on some places, but we're still talking the same place right here. This is the same place that Jesus would be circumcised and dedicated. Um, it's where Mary and Joseph find him teaching. Remember when they lose him on the way, we're about to read the whole Christmas story again. It is December and, um, the land of Moriah is the land that Jesus would perform many miracles and ultimately offer himself as a sacrifice for the world's sin on the peak of Moriah at Golgotha. That's up here. So this is the mountain. That's the peak. Um, this is where Abraham is bringing Isaac. It's all tied from the beginning of Genesis, and it's not even done being fulfilled. It's still happening. Moves on, it goes on into Revelation and everything, but um, how amazing is that? Are you excited as I am? So, um, both of them were sacrificed on the same hill. So, done. Moving on. So, to, we are at verse 6 now, and... Um, <clears throat> It says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. Again, um, in your study with your translation comparisons and um, looking for those little clues, my New King James has that word it italicized. Some of them it's in brackets. So why would that be? If you go and you look at different comparisons or if you just think, hmm, that's weird. Why is that there? My cross-reference brought up that um, John 19, 17, carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place of the skull, which is Golgotha that we just looked at. And um, the NLT says, on his shoulders. Specifically, Isaac took the wood and he laid it on his shoulders. You wouldn't lay something on the front of somebody. You would lay it on the back. So he's packing it up and Jesus did the same. When he carried the cross, he carried it on his shoulders. So the wood here is significant um, and points us to Jesus there. So in verse 8, um we see that Abraham gives us a very clear indication that he has a better understanding of who God is. God himself will pro provide. God is not a God that needs provided for. So in his wording there in eight, when he says, you know, Isaac is asking him, where's the sacrifice? And he says, God himself will provide. Not there's going to be one provided when we get there, but God himself would provide. So we're seeing in him that growth that he's recognizing um, that God is God Almighty. He provides for himself. So attribute time, guys, as you're in your study, um, we see God is sustainer. He is provider. It's who God is. Abraham is recognizing that. And then in verse 9 is our next, our number 4. Um, both Isaac and Jesus willingly went to be sacrificed. He, um, we know that Abraham bound Isaac and laid him on the altar. Again, it's not the kid Bible story that we're talking about. We're talking about a 37-year-old man being bound 
and being put on an altar. There is nowhere here. We know that they've already had the lamb talk. Where's the lamb? Oh, we don't have one. And now we're, we're getting um, up here where he's being bound and laying down on the altar. And we don't get anything on what was said, how they felt. Um, but there is no indication at all that there's a struggle um, and actually in back in verses six and eight, um, it said twice that the two of them went together. And this would indicate that Isaac willingly went with Abraham. So um, that is number four. And um, we're seeing the same thing here with the providing um being back, Abraham recognizing that it was God who would provide, and it reminded me of back in the lesson where God, um, remember the ceremony, the weird ceremony where Abraham is sleeping and, and God performs the ceremony on his own. It's again that same picture of God being the one that would provide. Um, so Abraham doesn't know exactly what God will provide, but he is confident that he will. Um, he's at this place of understanding that he just has to show up and that God will do the rest. So it, this is the theme of this walk of faith we've been on with Abraham and Sarah. And before our eyes, we see Abraham's faith in action. He is putting his money where his mouth is. In verse 10, um, we see Abraham stretch out his hand and take the knife to slay his son. Um, we saw in our study book last week that um, faith put to action is good works. It's always one of those weird um, teachings that um, there's always that argument. How do you have works without faith? How do you have faith without works? And the answer is you don't. It's not one or the other. Faith put to action is good works. Good works are dead without faith, and faith without action really isn't faith at all. Abraham didn't just walk up the mountain and say he was going to slay Isaac. Um, we see him actually take the knife to do it. So our study book had us go to Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. Um, we should all be very familiar with Hebrews 11 by now. Um, we have referenced this, did you know, over uh, at least six times in our study. So we've been there almost, what week are we in? A lot of weeks. <laughs> and um, I, I don't know if I've been in a study that has referenced an, a chapter that many times over and over. But um, we see Abraham's faith once again play out as he tells the men to stay here with the donkey and lad, and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. The Bible is finally speaking my language. It is. We have finally caught up. Um, we're good. We're going to be fine. So... Um, Hebrew assists us a little more, and we see that not only does Abraham trust that Isaac will come back, but to the point of trusting that even if he has to kill his own flesh and blood, that Isaac will be raised again, which is another picture of you-know-who. And um, we see through this that Abraham, Abraham's eyes had 
truly been open to the fact that God is not a God that contradicts himself. If he said repeatedly that Isaac would be the heir, then Isaac would be the heir. And all is that is right and good and the truth. And it's where we should have landed. But there's something very important in verse 12. And this is where I really start teaching. <laughs> Hold on. You're going to go to bed eventually. Um, I, do, I don't want you guys to miss this. God says to Abraham, now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your one and only son for me, from me. Which backs up my point about Abraham finally getting it, really getting it. He understands who God is. Abraham knows that God is God Almighty. He knows that what he says he will do, he will do. He has seen the power of God displayed um, in things like Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction, the intervention with Pharaoh and Abimelech. He saw the power of God there. Um, he surely saw the promise about when Isaac is born. He understands that he can't just pick up and run to another town. God would be there too. He's getting it. Um, a great example of not getting it is the story of Jonah. God tells Jonah to go and... Jonah doesn't want to go, so he runs. And we know um, from another one of those precious Bible stories that uh, Jonah gets thrown off a ship and into the belly of a well. And he ends up there because he had no fear of the Lord until after the fish has had him in his belly for a while. Um, the fear of the Lord is a good thing. It's simply the knowledge that God is God. Fear of God in the Old Testament is the respect that a person has for God, causing him to turn from evil and keep his commandments. Another great example of the fear of God every time I think about it, um, I think of Job. And... Um, in Job 1.8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So we know most of us are familiar with the story of Job. Um, he goes through unheard of suffering, loss, sickness, anything that you can imagine, anything that you could be facing today, we know that Job experienced it during that time. 37 chapters before God answers. But when God does answer, um, God speaks. He reveals his all-powerful ways to Job. I wanted to just read some things that, Job, that, that God says to Job in chapter 38. He says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb and as I closed it with clouds and wrapped it with thick darkness? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? 
Have you ever explored the springs from which the sea comes? Have you ever explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Have you visited the storehouses of snow or seen the storehouses of hell? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make the lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? God doesn't say all of these things to argue his, that he's superior. Though, don't be mistaken, he is superior. But we know that God never argues or has to prove that of himself. There is nowhere in this word that he even thinks to have to prove himself. We know it's just not of his character. So um, he doesn't say these things to Job to brag about who he, ha- who he is. He says these things to Job to say, look at me. Look what I can do. Look at the God that you serve. Quit looking at the things around you. I am God. Fear me because I am God. Respect me because I am God. Trust me because I am God. So these three men in the story, Abraham, Jonah, and Job, all encountered God in very different ways, but all of them came to the same conclusion. God is worthy of reverence and awe, and no matter what life looks like, God will prevail when he has a plan. That is our God. That's who we get to trust. That's who gives us good and perfect gifts. That is the God that calls Abraham and us friend and child and makes us promises. The God that tells the lightning where to strike. And as I wrote this, I had to ask myself, do I get it? Do you get it? Do we really understand? Psalms 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Isaiah 33.6 says, Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. So back to our story in verse 12. It's because Abraham gets it that he has acted in obedience. And the angel of God steps in and delivers Isaac from death. Both Isaac and Jesus were delivered from death on the third day. It's our last one, number five. We know it's the third day because in verse nine, it says they came to a place God had told him. And in verse four, on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. We're still on the third day.
And Abraham lifts his eyes again, and God has yet again set himself apart, proving that he would not require human sacrifice from his people like all the other gods in the land around them. God is proving he is the one true God. He is yet again setting himself apart. Simply put, God is the only God worthy of worship and sacrifice. Back in verse 5, we saw the um, we see the word worship for the first time also. Love and worship for the first time in this chapter. Um, the meaning of that word in verse 5 is to bow down. Is the um, and we see Abraham and Isaac's response that they indeed have come to recognize God as the one true God and worship him. And in verse 14, Abraham calls the name of the place that the Lord will provide. And I don't know if y'all remember that first, um, it was week three of our study, and we did that where we we listed um, what the Lord had provided. And it was just really sweet for me to see that come back around. God gave it to me at the beginning of the study, and here we are, um, 20-some chapters in, and we are seeing the name of God, Yahweh Yireh. He gave it to me then, and um, we have seen him show up in a big way all the way throughout this book. The Lord will provide. It is God who provides the place, the will, the obedience, the path, the offering. It is Yahweh Yireh, the God who provides. He again gives the blessing to Abraham, and again the Lord swears by himself. Because it is the highest name, the name above all names. There is no name greater. And in the closing, he says, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because the blessing is a divine consequence of faith. Because you have obeyed my voice. Again, it's about God. So to wrap up tonight, we will say goodbye to Sarah in chapter 23. I didn't want to go into any of the details that we have in the text, though they're so very important and you should in your time, but I didn't want to take away from the honor of Sarah and her life. Sarah too was a God-fearing woman. Um, Why we see her in the beginning of the chapters where she laughs at the unlikely child, um, we see her as she holds Isaac, see God in a new way. The fear of God, the holding of a new life, a new baby, especially a promised baby of years and years and years. Um, she sees a new side. She uh, Think about when you hold a baby, a new life, a tiny little, you see a glimpse of Jesus like never you have experienced looking down at their little faces. Sarah held her miracle too, and she definitely saw the power of God in that time. Um, we are told two times in scripture to specifically look to Sarah as a picture of a faithful woman of God and wife. No other lady in the Bible has this honor, not even Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
That was pretty amazing. So in First Peter, um, which we saw back in Lesson 18, um, he talks about Sarah and, and that we should look at her, and he lists the qualities. But it also says that in Isaiah 51, 2, says, Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. And then thirdly, um, we have to also list that Sarah is the only woman in the Hall of Fame. She was quite the lady, and her life leaves a legacy that all of us should look to for sure. So it's been an honor to study and read about Sarah's life. And um, on that note, goodbye, Sarah. And we are done. And we're done with the first half of the study of Genesis. We won't, I mean, that's crazy, right? Okay, let me pray and y'all can go home. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've given to us. Um, God, may we leave here in reverence and in awe of who you are. God, the study has blessed our hearts. We are so grateful for, for Abraham and for Sarah and for each struggle that they've been through. God, it makes our struggles um, just seem doable. Um, to look back and and just to see your faithfulness through what's happened. I know it's blessed my heart and um, we just thank you so much. We thank you for this time together, this fellowship. We thank you for um, our health and um, God, we just love you. You're just good. The giver of perfect and lovely gifts. May we not take it for granted. God, we love you. We praise you. Be with us as we go out. In Jesus' name, amen.